Hey friend, this is Julie Slattery and you're listening to Job with Julie. This podcast is an outreach of Authentic Intimacy, a ministry dedicated to reclaiming God's design for sexuality. Thanks for joining me today. It's Thanksgiving week and I hope you're all looking forward to eating too much turkey and pumpkin pie this weekend. But you know what that means? It means Christmas is right around the corner. And if you've listened to Job with Julie, you may know that I hate Christmas shopping. If you're like me, you try to do as much shopping online as you possibly can. So I have a great gift idea for you this year, a membership to Authentic Intimacy. One of the easiest ways you can help this ministry to grow is to share our resources with others. In this season, we've created a way for you to give the gift of an AI membership to a friend or family member. They'll receive full access to our Job with Julie archives, our monthly webinars, and discounts on all of our resources. You can choose between a three-month, six-month, or 12-month membership. I think it's a great gift idea, but yeah, I might be a little biased. Learn more at AuthenticIntimacy.com slash gift. That's AuthenticIntimacy.com slash G-I-F-T. Well, today I have the privilege of talking with author Max Lucado. I've enjoyed many of his books, and I'm sure you probably have too. But today I'll talk with Max about his experience with the Me Too movement and the Church Too movement. Max is a respected pastor who has shared very openly about his temptations with pornography and the great measures that he takes to protect himself. And last year, at a summit for pastors and church leaders on responding to sexual harassment, Max shared yet another reason he has such empathy for hurting people, his own personal story of abuse and brokenness. We'll hear that today, as well as why Max believes it's so important for Christian leaders to start having honest conversations about sexual misconduct within the church. Let's listen to my conversation with Max Lucado. Well, Max, thanks so much for taking the time to chat with me today. I know you've got a lot going on in San Antonio, and just you're always writing a book, it seems like. Are you working on one now? I am. I am. You know, I've learned that the key is not quality, just quantity. Just turn them out one after the other. <laughs> that's not true. I've read your books. I know that's not true. What are you working on these days? These well, days? right now I'm working. In fact, I am uh, in the throes. I'm up to the thorax mm-hmm. in a book on the miracles of Jesus as recorded in the Gospel of John. Mm-hmm. And we are rounding third base on it. I'm in I guess you could call it almost final edits. The book is written, and I'm back and forth with the editor that you and I share, uh, Liz mm-hmm. Haney, and then Karen Hill, is, who shares an office with me. It's a, also our executive editor. We've got it written, and now it's just a lot of spit and polish and making sure the idea is right. But we're still struggling on a title. Uh, right now, the working title is Ever-Present Help. Ever present help. Do you like mm-hmm. that title? I do like that. That's something yeah. I need. I know. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. So, uh, you might hear this from other people, but you've written so many profound books. But my personal favorite is actually the children's book, You Are Special. Mm. So, I do, do other hear people that. tell yeah. you that? It's yeah. just, yeah. with that book, you nailed the most difficult concept that we struggle with, with such a simple story. 
And I actually just spoke last week at Moody Bible Institute and their chapel, and I used You Are Special. I had a little box of dots and stars <laughs> and uh, because that book has been just profound in my life. I need to keep going back to it. So thank That you. book has had a beautiful history. It's a, It was written that kind of the interesting context, though, is that the publisher of that book is a company called Crossway, mm-hmm. a terrific publisher in Wheaton. And I'd made a commitment to write seven children's stories that would uh, be a part of a series of children's books. And so I thought I had written all seven. And this is back in 90, I want to say Julie, 96 or 97. And I got a call uh, from their office saying, we need the seventh story this week. Hmm. And uh, I remember telling them, I sent you seven stories. And they said, no, you sent us six. Oh, my goodness. So all of a sudden, I had to fulfill a deadline I I didn't know I had. Well, that was a busy week, but I was able to clear Thursday afternoon. And so my goal when I sat down at my desk was, I got to write a children's story today. I've got about three hours here to get Mm -hmm. it done. I have three daughters, and at the time, we would make up stories at night. They were small at the time. And I had been doodling with this one, you know, with them about stars and dots and and so I just wrote what I had been telling my kids, sent it to them, had no idea, had no idea that this book would be translated in, goodness gracious, 20 or so languages, mm-hmm. sell well, almost 2 million copies. It's been read in Congress. Mm-hmm. At one time, it was read by a congressman to Congress trying to communicate. So it's just a neat story. It wasn't really an act of inspiration, more perspiration and <laughs> obligation uh, to get it done. Well, I love how God sometimes does his best work through us, like when we're not necessarily inspired. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So your most recent book is called Unshakable Hope, and it's about the promises of God. And I'd love to get into some, what some of those promises are, but particularly related to something that you recently shared about at a summit at Wheaton College. You were responding to the Me Too movement and the church to movement in terms of you know, how is the church addressing women that have been sexually violated? And you shared your own story of sexual abuse as a child. Was that the first time you'd ever shared that? It was. Of course, my wife, I had told her about it, but I had not shared it with anyone else. And when Ed Stesser uh, called to see if I would participate in that summit, I was curious as to why I wanted to. Mm. When he called, he said, it's like next month, you know, it's a quick turnaround. We're putting this together. Would you be willing to? And typically I was preaching. I was entering a preaching season and it was pretty hard to clear the schedule and do it and find time to prepare. But I felt in my heart I should go. And only though when I was there, Julie, did I realize I need to share that I, too, have endured a form of sexual abuse. Mm -hmm. And so I did. I shared it. It's not that I've really kept it a secret all these years, but I guess I have. I just didn't feel it was necessary to talk about. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I was surprised how many people felt encouraged that I had endured, gone through that type of experience. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing it. I think we're getting to a day and age, particularly with the Me Too movement, where women are feeling more invited to share their stories, 
but there's still, I think, more barriers for women, but particularly for men, because yeah. men, we don't even think of this as an issue for men. Yeah. Uh, and so there seems to be more of that sense of shame of mm. talking about it uh, for young men. Yeah, I actually wrote the story and posted it in a blog and for the first time went into detail about it because it was a shameful, it was a embarrassing. Here's what happened. A gentleman in our small town where I grew up, a small West Texas town, primarily oil and ranchers and football. That's what the whole city was about. Maybe six or 7,000 people, 8,000 in its heyday. A guy in that city positioned himself as a leader, a mentor of young men and befriended a lot of our fathers and said, let me hang out with your boys and I want to take them on camping trips. And, you know, who knows why our dads, uh, you know, trusted him. And so he did. And he would take us to games. He drove us once to another city to watch a concert I'm talking about six or seven of us. Mm -hmm. And then he started taking us to his house. We'd cook burgers. I do recall that he had a stack of uh, Playboy magazines. Mm -hmm. My dad, of course, did not allow that, but uh, he didn't care if we went over and flipped through them. And we we're just 12. I was 12 years old. Mm -hmm. And he would let us ask questions about girls that we didn't feel comfortable asking our dads. And, and so in that way, we kind of bonded. But he was after sexual intimacy with the boys. Mm -hmm. And so he took us on a camping trip. And the one I remember most vividly is when we got to six or seven of us were in a camping trip. We had two or three tents. And he showed up with several bottles of Jack Daniels. And he just started drinking. And the more he drank, the more vile he became. He told dirty jokes. He had terrible language. But what are kids going to do? I mean, yeah. we were... We were 20 miles from the city. We couldn't leave. And then that night, he just made his way from sleeping bag to sleeping bag. And it was perverted. It was perverted. Mm -hmm. And I'll never forget it. But, okay, so here's why I wanted to tell the story. So I get back home on a Sunday, and my family was a church-going family. We weren't perfect. We sure had our issues. But my dad was a God-fearing man, and, and he made sure we went to church. and. That particular Sunday, the church had had a communion service, Julie. Well, of all the days, I needed a communion service. I came in just filthy, physically just filthy, but emotionally just felt violated. But this guy, this perpetrator, had clearly communicated to us, don't tell anybody about this, or they'll think that you caused it. Mm -hmm. He was a real scoundrel, this guy. Mm -hmm. So I didn't know what to do. I believed him. I thought it was my fault. My little 12-year-old brain didn't have a place for this. I just felt like I'd done something wrong and I was all to blame. Well, I got in at about four or five that afternoon on a Sunday, knowing that the church had had a communion service. So I waited through the evening and took a shower, cleaned up. And about bedtime when my parents were in bed, I went into our kitchen and I created my own little communion service. I found uh, we didn't have crackers and grape juice or wine, but we did have potatoes from the Sunday dinner and milk. And in my little mind, I said, Lord, I just need to commune with you. Yeah. And Julie, here's the deal for me. Jesus healed me in that moment. He healed mm -hmm. me. He just mm -hmm. healed me. He met me there. It was profound. It was tender. 
It was so simple, a little 12-year-old freckle-faced kid creating his own liturgy, his own little prayer, meeting the Lord, asking for redemption. And I just felt forgiven, even though now I know I didn't have anything to seek forgiveness. But I received forgiveness. And whatever had happened to me, I felt was healed then. And so I'm sorry I'm talking so much about this, but, but I wanted to tell this part of the story. Because I think there is supernatural healing that can happen. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't begin to compare my story with that of somebody who has been abused by a relative over a period of weeks, months, and years. This was a one-time event of a stranger. Mm -hmm. And our little town chased him out. Mm -hmm. Justice Mm -hmm. was done. I realized about a month later, he was no longer in the city. And one of the other guys said, yeah, he got run out of town. Yeah. I have no idea what happened, but vigilante mm-hmm. vengeance took place. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking that somebody told their dad yeah. and that that guy was gone. I have no idea what happened to him, but I was healed. I was healed. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and I, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, the most profound part of that story is you were 12, but I think even as adults, when we have something like that happen, the last thing we feel like is we can connect with God. Our instinct is to run from God and to hide and feel like, I don't want to go to church. I certainly don't want to take communion because I'm confused. I feel dirty. The fact that your instinct was, I need God, I need His presence, is profound. It really is. And again, I never shared that story. It's not, again, that I kept it a secret or was ashamed about it. It's not that I didn't want anybody to find out about it, Julie. It's just that I was healed. It was a non-issue. It was a terrible, atrocious act. But when the Me Too movement started and I began hearing these stories, I felt I've got a connection here. Again, not to compare my story with some of the extended abuse situations of a spouse or a boss or somebody from whom you cannot easily detach. I don't want to say I'm in that realm or that league. I know that's a whole different thing. But in a remote way, I could say, yeah, I get that. I've been there. And can I tell you how Jesus healed me? Yeah. And we know from just working with people that have experienced trauma, there's no point in comparing. There are people, Max, that have had an experience similar to yours where it just happened one time and the enemy took the opportunity to plant lies and fears that men and women have lived out of for decades. Mm-hmm. And so it's not a matter of how often it happened or you know who was your abuser. A sexual abuse provides the enemy opportunity to do great damage, even if it happens once. Yeah, I've wondered to what degree the devil got in there and sowed seeds. I did battle as a teenager temptation with girls, Mm -hmm. and I did not resist that temptation. I'm not Mm -hmm. saying that I had a stellar performance in that area. And, you know, to this day, I have to put filters on everything I own, Mm -hmm. you know, my my laptop, my desktop, my wife. I do not know the code to her phone or her Mm -hmm. email. I guess what I'm saying is that I don't know if that event Uh, left me more susceptible. I just don't, or if I would have always been one who has to be super careful. Mm -hmm. 
I have talked to some guys who say, you know, it's just all this pornography on the internet. It doesn't get to me. Mm-hmm. I just decide not to do it. And um, I'm just not one of those guys. I have to take every single possible precaution. Julie, I have had to, at times, ask the hotel to remove the television from the mm-hmm. room because they did not have a filter. You know, when I check into a hotel, first thing I do is I call down and I say, can you block the adult movies in this room Uh every time? And there have been occasions where they would say, we don't know how to do that. I don't know how to do it. You know, maybe somebody who's new to the company and they honestly don't know how to do it. It's just once or twice, but I've had to say, I need need to come up and take the power cord out of this. Mm. So I can't turn it on. Now, one time I said, can you just remove the TV? Mm-hmm. And they did. They did. And I just, I think I read the other day, $90 billion a year is going to the pornography industry. Yeah, It's just terrible. Yeah. It's a plague. And I think we have to know our uh, susceptibilities mm-hmm. and, and some of us have to take radical steps. Well, I so appreciate you saying that and being honest because I think a lot of Christian leaders feel like they're not even allowed to admit that they struggle and that they somehow are above the struggles that the rest of the people deal with. And I remember you being that honest several years ago about battling alcoholism and and your desire to be a man of integrity is a great example because you're not afraid to admit that, hey, these are the things I struggle with and this is the kind of accountability I need. When we don't take those steps, to be honest, is when the enemy really can start to play with us and yeah. and we start to lead a double life. And you yeah. don't have to be in ministry for that to happen. That's true. That's true. But um, uh, The idea of being perfect in the perception of people is a very heavy weight to bear. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's tough. Mm-hmm. And... Um, as a pastor, although I'm semi-retired now, thankfully, <laughs> got a little more free time, but I'm still kind of perceived as a public spiritual leader. And so there's this temptation to let everybody think that I don't have any struggles. But, you know, aren't we grateful to the New Testament in stories like the story of Peter denying Christ, denying him three times with foul language. I mean, he fell away. He did what he swore he'd never do. And yet Christ met him there and forgave him. And after the crucifixion and then the resurrection, he appeared to him on the Sea of Galilee, invited Peter to answer the question, do you love me? Three times. And three times Peter said yes, because there were three times Peter denied Christ. And so Jesus reinstated him. He forgave him. He reinstated him. And three times he said, feed my sheep, feed my sheep, feed my sheep. So he publicly restored him. It's just a a beautiful story. Our our goal is not to project a perfect image. Our goal is to preach about a perfect Christ. Mm -hmm. And if we try to, speaking now to pastors, female and male, who feel like you've got to be perfect, you've got to be perceived as perfect, you've got to be buttoned up, you've got to have the right answer all the time. Hey, you're not going to carry that weight very long. You're going to fall. The best thing you can do is just shoot straight and say, you know, I struggle with this, I struggle with this, I struggle with pride, I struggle with greed. You don't gain anything by trying to project this perfect persona. Mm -hmm. Yeah, amen. 
When you spoke at this conference in Chicago, you shared your story, but you also shared your heart for women, particularly those who have been wounded within church settings, which unfortunately is way too high. One person is too high, but we continually hear stories of people in spiritual leadership who have used that leadership to take advantage of children and women. You have a unique vantage point, having been somebody that has suffered from sexual abuse, as well as being a respected pastor. What word do you have for women that have experienced abuse, particularly within a religious setting? Well, my first word is I'm just so sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry that the church was not a safe place for you. And uh, for those who take advantage of their pastoral office and use that as a tool of power to wield, there needs to be serious repentance. They need to say, I'm sorry. They need to own that, need to come clean. But to that person who has endured that, I would just beg that person to not let their hurt toward that individual to keep them away from Christ. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's the tool of the devil there. If it is at all possible, could we say that act was Satan's idea, but myself, my being is God's idea. And that act is atrocious and dirty and evil as it was. God is greater than that. He's greater than that. Mm -hmm. And that though the church at that time, was a place of abuse. There are, for every you know one church where that happens, there are dozens where it has not happened. And there are churches that are seeking to be a safe place and holding themselves accountable. Mm-hmm. I know in our church, when all of this began to happen, our senior team instigated a season of prayer and then also called all our HR department, called on all of us to go on into seminars of awareness training, where especially the guys were taught how to speak respectfully to women. And there's a lot of ignorance. And I'm at the top of that food chain. Ignorance about how we say what we say can be misconceived and misperceived. Mm-hmm. And so hopefully the churches, ours included, are learning to do this better and not send those inappropriate signals, make those inappropriate touches. It's hard. I know our church, we kind of like to hug each other all the time. Yeah. You know, it's a hugging culture. And so we had to have a heart-to-heart talk about, you know, maybe that's just not the right thing. And, yeah. and especially, again, the gentlemen were taught some things and say, don't be so aggressive. Don't make people feel uncomfortable. And so to that person who you're asking me about, the person who has been hurt, I'm just so sorry. Mm. I'm so sorry. Mm -hmm. You have an ever-present help, however. Mm -hmm. You have the presence of Christ, ever-present, and he will help you. You're not on your own. He will help you. Yeah. Um, Thank you for those words and that promise that Jesus is ever-present. He's our help. In your book, Unshakable Hope, you're talking about promises that we can take to the bank. And uh, I think in today's day and age, we can present the church and God is promising things that he never promised, like someday you'll have a great husband or you name it. And so people don't know what God actually has promised them. Is that one of the promises you talk about in Unshakable Hope is just the presence of God? Yes, it is. It is. 
again, there's over 7,000 promises in the Bible. So God is a promise maker. He's a promise keeper. And I think he would have us build our lives on the promises of God. So this book, Unshakable Hope, uh, just encourages all of us to choose promises as our go-to place when we face problems. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, the one you mentioned there, lo, I'm with you always, even Mm -hmm. to the end of the age. That was Jesus's promise, one of his final promises. He's going to be with us always. So there's never a place where we are that God is not. Luther is, you know, famously said, when we go to the brothel, Jesus goes to the brothel. He follows us. He accompanies us. This is his promise. When we forget him, he doesn't forget us. And so to think that God is an ever-present help, that he's right here, quick to help, quick to give strength, quick to bring blessings, quick to help me. So my idea in this book is let's begin to build our lives, not on the pain in life or the problems in life, but let's begin to build our life on the promises of God. And so I selected 13 promises that are really go-to promises that I've come to depend on, but a person could make their own list of essential promises, and I think they'd be blessed by doing so. So when you say build your life on these promises, how do you practically do that? So even take, for example, the promise that Jesus goes with us wherever we mm-hmm. go. Yeah. What does that look like today for me yeah. to walk yeah. out that promise yeah. practically? I have trouble sleeping. I've always struggled to sleep. Uh, last night, I had the hardest time getting to sleep. I think I, I didn't eat well at my dinner, and I didn't uh, and for a lot of reasons. And so oftentimes, I will toss and turn trying to go to sleep. I find it so comforting to say, okay, Lord, you're going to meet me here in the middle of the night. Here I am on the pillow. My wife is sound asleep. Our dog is sound asleep. And here I am an hour later still trying to go to sleep. But Lord, you're with me. You're with me. Mm-hmm. Can we just, can I commune with you? And I try to give him some of my thoughts and make some prayers. I think it's a comforting promise to stand on. Now, Jesus had never made that promise to me. Where would my thoughts go? You know, I might get more anxious. I might uh, think of things I shouldn't think about. That's an example of building my life on the promise. Okay, Lord, there you are. You said, I'm with you always. That means right now you're here. And so, Lord, can I commune with you? That's an example of what it means, I think, to build your life on the promises. Yeah. When Jesus made that promise, did he make it to all people or um, just to those that would trust in him? And how important is it for us to distinguish? You know, Did he make some promises a, that were conditional? That's a great question. That's a great question. Since he is omnipresent, uh, he is everywhere always. But unique to the believers of Christ is the presence of Christ in our hearts uh, through the presence of the Comforter, the Holy Spirit. And so there is an intensity to his presence that comes to the believer. We can commune with him. We can know that we have an advocate. Jesus is now standing at the right hand of God, serving as our advocate. So, yes, he is with everyone. Uh, No one is far from him. That was part of Paul's sermon in Acts chapter 17 on Mars Hill. He is not far from each of us, Paul said, but he is within some of us. He is inside of us. When we give our hearts to Christ, he returns the favor and he places his heart inside of us in the presence of the Holy Spirit. Now, this is the era of the Holy Spirit. 
The Holy Spirit is inside me, inside you, and giving us the capacity to have the sense of the presence of God. And he's working inside of us Mm -hmm. to to help us become the presence of God. Mm -hmm. So what is one other promise that you write about that is just maybe your favorite, just Um, foundational? Well, uh, you know, I think in line with what we're discussing today, the area of sexual shame and forgiveness, the promise of Romans 8 and verse 1, that there is now therefore no condemnation. Mm-hmm. For those who are in Christ Jesus, yeah, Satan is called in the book of Revelation, the accuser. He spends his day accusing us, mm-hmm. uh, accusing Julie, accusing Max. He sends out these words of accusation. You're too dirty. You're too vile. You're too weak. You're not smart. You're, you're a failure. You're a flop. All that's the language, the vernacular of the devil. But mm-hmm. we can counterbalance that. We can dismiss that by saying, no. I'm going to believe that there is no condemnation for me. Mm-hmm. I have There's no voice of condemnation. So I receive that today. I'm standing upon that. I have messed up in my life, but I'm not condemned by God. Mm-hmm. And so I'm standing on that. Mm-hmm. So I think that that would be another promise that would be a put that one in your pocket and, mm-hmm. and pull it out on a regular basis. Yeah. Part of walking that out, the difficulty of walking that out is it doesn't say there's no consequences for those who are in Christ Jesus. And particularly related to sexual sin, the choices we make, often there's consequences like a sexually transmitted disease or the wake of a divorce, you name it, where people feel like, how can I not have shame and believe that Jesus doesn't condemn me when I'm living with the consequences? And you know, King David is a great example of that. He was forgiven by God, and he had this sense of being cleansed completely, but yet the rest of his life, he walked out some pretty significant consequences. Boy, didn't he? He really, that affair cost him so much. Yeah. In fact, I think you can see that his credibility in the kingdom began to suffer. Mm-hmm. And even as an old man, he was, you know, they he was a lonely old man. Mm-hmm. Um they actually, that curious instruction to bring in a girl to sleep mm-hmm. in the bed with him, to keep him warm. Just an odd story. Yeah. But he didn't have a family. He didn't have a spouse. He didn't have a wife to keep. So here's a, a story of a person who was forgiven and wrote that beautiful Psalm 51, the Psalm of Repentance, which can be a mantra for all of us who have fallen. And, and yet he had to endure the consequences of, mm-hmm. of those. So I think the story of David is a very important warning that God will restore us to himself. Will he restore us to the effectiveness of our ministry? That's a great question because uh, people in the situation that I'm in, I can only minister mm-hmm. on, on the basis of credibility. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can only minister on the basis of credibility. And if I lose the credibility, then I don't lose my salvation, but I may lose my ministry. And so it is a consequence. Yeah, it is a serious consequence I need to be aware of. Mm -hmm. It's a tough thing to walk through. And embracing those consequences, again, it can be the loss of a relationship, the loss of the respect of your children. Mm -hmm. Uh, It can be consequences in your body. Mm -hmm. But knowing that when we confess our sin, that we can be right with God. Mm-hmm. And even in those circumstances, we can use our lives to glorify Him 
mm-hmm. maybe in a different way than we we had yeah. before. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. yeah. Our, the tone of our ministry might change. We might be a testimony of God's grace. I've seen prophets turned into pastors. Uh, yeah. You know, people who've been proclaimers and excited and change the world, real energetic, vivacious, and then something like that happens, and they become tender-hearted portraits of grace. Yeah, uh, more humble and still used by God, but just in a different way. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm so thankful for the ways that you are continuing to allow God to use your life and your stories. Uh, you're an encouragement to millions. I'm sure you know that, but it's always good to hear it. I, yeah. I appreciate it. I do I do pray that I don't do anything stupid. Uh, yeah. That's kind of the mantra that we have here with our publishing team. Lord, don't let us do anything stupid. You've entrusted yeah. so much to us. and. Mm-hmm. So may the Lord protect you in your ministry and your relationships and protect me. May he deliver us from evil and may the devil's attempts to thwart all the lives of the listeners be defeated and may God just protect us and keep us faithful to him. Amen. And I want to thank Max for that prayer and benediction over our ministry. I'm grateful for his vulnerability and his encouragement to pastors and really to all of us to be honest about our struggles. If your church hasn't started to talk about how to appropriately respond to sexual harassment or how to allow victims of abuse to tell their stories, I hope you'll share this message with them. And don't forget to check out our gift of membership opportunity. It's happening now through the end of the year. Remember, you can choose a three-month, six-month, or 12-month membership for a friend or family member. It's a great way to share what you're learning on Java with Julie. Find out more at AuthenticIntimacy.com slash gift. Happy Thanksgiving, and I look forward to having coffee with you again next time on Java with Julie. 